If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Valid one time on Friday. Set participating McDonald's through 12-31-24. Excludes tax. Must update rewards. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. He's the most famous pharaoh of them all, but Tutankhamun's glittering legacy stretches beyond the treasures of his tomb. In the hundred years since the discovery of his burial place, says Professor Christina Riggs, the story of Tutankhamun has been inviolably shaped by colonialism and the British Empire. Speaking to Kev Lotcham for today's episode, Christina begins by explaining that, far from being a household name, Tutankhamun was virtually unknown when his tomb was discovered. The name of Tutankhamun might seem famous to us today, but when we go back a hundred years ago now, we're in 2022, so if we go back to 1922, only a handful of specialists, archaeologists and Egyptologists would have known who he was and would have known very little about him. His name crops up in connection with a period that Egyptologists call the Amarna period, and that's because um, the, the family sort of had um, the family that was ruling at that time, Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti lived at a place whose modern name is El Amarna. Akhenaten had built a new capital city and series of palaces at this place. That's probably where Tutankhamun grew up. So he reigns around, we're in the 1330s, 1320s BC, but nobody was really sure very much exactly even who 
whose child he was, how he was related to this family, how long he reigned. So the figure of Tutankhamun is strictly for specialists until November of 1922, when the British archaeologist Howard Carter, who'd been working in the Valley of the Kings, reports to his, um, his patron, his sponsor, the Earl of Carnarvon, that he had found a royal tomb. That's really fascinating. So, and uh, until his discovery, he's almost like a minor pharaoh in Egyptology. And as soon as he's found, he's the pharaoh. He's the pharaoh. He he hits the yeah. He goes from zero to sixty in in no time. Um, but still, I think also partly because so little is known about him. The discovery of the tomb is fascinating to to the media to the public because it's a royal tomb that seems never to have been entered before. So an untouched royal burial never found before in Egypt. Also, because this, there's this name of a, of a king that's not familiar to people, you can kind of project different ideas onto it. There's not a pre-existing, there's, you know, he's not a figure from the Bible. He's not a figure that was known from Greek and Roman authors writing about Egyptian history. There's no other record of him that, that people are familiar with. So, wow, you can imagine, you know, blank slate, make this guy into an icon. And not just a blank slate in terms of his character, but once you got that tomb, it's it's not blank at all. I think the number I took from your book was 5,640 or so objects. I mean, that's a huge discovery. It's a massive discovery. And I think we also, it's important to understand at the time just that nobody knew what to find. And that the, we talk about discovery as if it's a one-off thing, an instant, you know, light bulb going off in the head. This excavation took 10 years and was extremely complicated, as you'll know from reading the book, lots of um, of um, different stages, physical difficulties, political and funding issues that came into it. So it's 10 years before the whole story or the whole tomb is, is cleared and documented. It's an exhausting process. And the, the moments that fix in people's minds are just a couple of key kind of big flashy moments and then it's done, and then it almost kind of falls out of fashion, and the the news cycle moves on. One of those flashy moments is undoubtedly um, Howard Carter peering into the tomb. And I wonder. Sometimes it feels like the story of Tutankhamun is almost the story of Howard Carter. But it's a point you make. I mean, there's lots more people involved, and you kind of alluded to just now. Lots more people involved, and not just Westerners either, but especially Egyptians. I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about that kind of local involvement. Archaeology in Egypt would have been absolutely impossible without the local knowledge, the information about the landscape and familiarity with with their own history and their own surroundings that the Egyptian people themselves brought to it. And that's true from the, the 19th century when... European adventurers, I suppose, and antiquarians start traveling to Egypt after, this is in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, and so travel becomes uh, a little more stable, and the then governor of Egypt, Muhammad Ali, who governs Egypt on on behalf of the Ottoman Empire, of which it is a part, he sort of invites Europeans and welcomes Europeans to come in because he's interested in developing the military and the economy and uh, engineering capabilities in Egypt. So on the back of that, you get Egyptian people who who wind up working with providing information for archaeologists, and that includes Howard Carter, 
who relied on a team of Egyptian archaeologists, very experienced, to do all kinds of work for him, from supervising the excavation, that helping him, you know, working together as a team to, to do the clearance of the tomb and the objects, working with the, the, um, on the photography, and everything, you know, from, from also his, the, the staff, who, the, the, the guards who looked after the, the tomb and the excavation, and the officials who worked for the Ministry of Public Works that was ultimately responsible for it. So Egyptians are involved in this all the time, and yet, you know, you're absolutely right, it becomes all about Howard Carter, the, the British archaeologist. Does that speak, do you think, to uh, a broader point about Egyptology that maybe those involved in the work don't always get the credit for it? Absolutely. There's been an idea that only white people, especially white men, get to be called an Egyptologist or an archaeologist. But we know that there were and there are specialists among the Egyptian archaeologists who did the work right alongside, and it was their knowledge and their expertise that um, that also that they passed down, you know, through families and in the communities that was absolutely crucial to this kind of work. Howard Carter, for the work in the Valley of the Kings that he was doing when he discovered, um, when the tomb of Tutankhamun was discovered, he was working with a foreman, uh, Rais is the, the Arabic term, named Ahmed Girgar, or Gerigar, as, as Carter wrote it out at the time, who is somebody who'd been doing that kind of work for, you know, all of his life. And he'd worked with archaeologists in and around Luxor for 20, 25 years. And then there were three other men named Hussein Ahmed Said, Hussein Abu Awad, and Gad Hassan, who worked together with Carter. And they're the men that we will, um, that, that, we can see in the photographs that were taken of work inside the tomb. So they're the ones who were doing this delicate work, coordinating long hours of labor with Howard Carter. And he mentions them in the preface of the books that he publishes, but in, you know, to be honest, in a slightly patronizing kind of way. And when the photographs were published published um, in the press and up right to the present day, I see this happen all the time, when those photographs are published, the presence of an Egyptian archaeologist is not even mentioned. There's a lot of lost kind of labour in there. One thing you've mentioned just that I wanted to touch on was the photographs. And it was really interesting in your book when you were saying that the photographs, they aren't just photographs of objects, they are objects in them of themselves. Could you tell us a bit more about that and kind of like how the photographs, how important they are to the tale of Tutankhamun? Absolutely, Kev. I'm passionate about um, the history of photography in general. And those photographs are how I got interested or how I came back to the tomb of Tutankhamun as a subject. After having been interested in Tutankhamun, as so many people get interested, you know, as a kid, I then sort of didn't think about it, thought it was maybe a little bit too popular, a little bit naff, right? (laughs) Until a few years ago when I thought, you know, those photographs, I was using the photographs for research on, on ancient textiles, Right, because the, foot, the the tomb, having been untouched, still had the textile wrappings in place on all the objects, which were a crucial part of ancient Egyptian ritual. So I was using the photographs because you can see the textiles still in place. They were then, you know, they decayed or they were thrown away. They weren't really recorded the way the other objects were. Anyway, I thought I'll do some research on these photographs, and in fact, I quickly realized the photographs are the story. They, they don't tell the story, they made the story. And they are part of the reason why we know who Tutankhamun is 
why it became so famous and why it's been possible to revisit it and revisit it and revisit it over and over again. But those, but a photograph is never the whole story. A photograph is an object. It's one particular moment and it's one viewpoint. With Tutankhamun, is there a sense that viewpoint is being shaped by Carter and the other Egyptologists? It is, and it's being shaped with the press in mind because right from the beginning, attached to the tomb, especially in the first two years that they're working there, is a reporter from the London Times. So those photographs, they're taken by a a fantastic British archaeologist who was specialized in photography, a guy named Harry Burton. um, But they're earmarked from the beginning for publication in the London Times. And that becomes a real issue for Carter and Lord Carnarvon. How so? It was Lord Carnarvon who um, who negotiated the contract with the Times. He saw it as a way to help offset the expenses that, he, that the, the excavation was going to cost him. But he and Carter were behaving with a really British imperial kind of attitude, and they totally misjudged the situation in Egypt. We're at the end of 1922, right? November, December 1922, when this hits the headlines. And earlier that year, February of 1922, Britain had called off its negotiations with Egyptian politicians who were seeking independence, who were seeking a kind of home rule. In order to meet their full demands, Britain said, fine, you can have your home rule, but we maintain this and this and this and this. Essentially, then, Egypt in 1922 gets a kind of of independence and that's a, that's a huge thing. They've been, you know, for decades, ever since the 1882 British invasion and occupation of Egypt, there's been resistance to the British Empire. There's been resistance to this, the, the, um, the occupation of the country and the, the interference and, and imposition of, of, a, of a veiled or shadow British government. So for Egypt to have its independence and to be able to start planning for free elections is a huge moment. And yet Carter and Carnarvon behave as if the tomb of Tutankhamun belongs to Britain, not to Egypt. I'm glad you brought up the political context. That is a heavy theme through your book about how Britain's place in the world and empire shaped. And actually, it was um, I, I was listening to a talk you gave at the University of Pisa, I think it was in 2017, but you said there, was, there could not have been archaeology without colonialism. I wonder if you could just like, expand on that for us. And it's kind of how is... Britain's place in the world and local Egyptian politics merging into the tale of Tutankhamun. They're absolutely inseparable, and that's something that I think many people don't realise about the tomb of Tutankhamun, apart, of course, from Egyptians who know this history all too well. Archaeology and empire are absolutely inseparable, especially when we're looking at a, a part of the, of the globe, um, North Africa, the Middle East, where empire was fundamental in shaping the 19th century and up into the 20th century, of course, the 19th and 20th century development, um, military and political kind of machinations in that area, in Egypt, particularly around the Suez Canal, which was and and still is, of course, so so strategic. So we can't separate archaeology and politics. They absolutely feed off each other, go go together. Decisions about archaeology in Egypt were taken at the highest level of the British administration that was running the country from 1882 until, you know, the the 1922 kind of granting of independence. So Carter is back and forth in negotiating with 
British administrators and advisors to the Egyptian government, and then he has to switch over the course of the excavation of the tomb to negotiating with his new Egyptian interlocutors, his the Egyptian ministers um, of public works and so on. I'd be interested to hear thoughts on um, what Tupmania has offered the world in this past hundred years, but also what it's mean for um, Egypt itself. We think of, of Tutmania, this this um, fervor for Tutankhamun, we think of it as a Western phenomenon. It was really a kind of global phenomenon. There's already a huge interest in ancient Egypt, right, going into 1922. So the discovery of the tomb of Tutankhamun is, is on fertile ground, right? And it just kind of takes off, like, oh, wow, this is fantastic. To, you know, Egyptomania not a term that I really like, because I do think there's a certain logic behind it. But this craze, this fashion for for Egypt and for Tutankhamun is truly global. I was reading recently about interest in the 1920s in um, in Shanghai, and where where it was actually seen um, in in an anti-colonial lens, yeah, kind of sympathy for the Egyptians at the hands of the British government. Tutankhamun just fits the 1920s. He fits this mood after the the losses and the devastation of the First World War. He fits a mood in Europe and and America in particular of let's have fun, let's just design, you know, mass consumption, consumer culture, a global media phenomenon, music, the jazz age, art deco, which hasn't, I mean, art deco is a later 1920s phenomenon, but Tutankhamun seems ready-made for this. He's also hugely popular in Egypt. If we look at the reaction in Egypt, where, you know, as, as I've said, that Egypt's won its independence. It's it's got its first kind of independently elected prime minister. The first prime minister who's who's chosen after independence is a man named Saad Zaglul, who'd been resisting British rule for decades. And there's also a fashion in Egypt for this is fantastic. This speaks to the reawakening of Egypt as a country after the decades of British occupation and centuries of rule from the Ottoman Empire. I think in in Britain, I often talk about this with my students, you know, we've had these commemorations of the ending of the First World War in 2018. Well, in fact, the First World War kept rumbling on in the Middle East, and we see its effects still today. So as the Ottoman Empire broke up, that's what created this opening in Egypt to, to lobby for independence. And so Tutankhamun is embraced, you know, there's school plays, there's poetry, there's media coverage, there are Egyptians going to Luxor to see the tomb. It's, it's something that everybody can shape and react to and engage with to fit their own uh, perspective. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. And that in understanding the politics of the past, we can look more carefully at the politics of the present that shape the way we think about the past. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. On the surface of that, it sounds quite jolly. You've got the roaring 20s, and here's the glitz and glamour of Tutankhamun, Carmoon, golden mask and all. But I want to pick up on something else you just said there. You mentioned resistance to um, British kind of influence and the decades of British occupation, and also the Ottoman Empire as well. So in that context, how much does Tutankhamun become a political tool? Tutankhamun and politics go together. They can't be separated. Howard Carter has to face that. When the the first elections post-independence take place and a party called the Wafid that had been one of the, the nationalist or pro-independence parties is in power, it's the first time that foreign archaeologists like Howard Carter are answering to a, a ministry that is run by Egyptians for Egyptians. There are still British government advisors, and the actual antiquities service, as it's called, the, the arm of the ministry that overlooks excavations in Egypt, is run by a French archaeologist. So we've got a real transnational melting pot here of, of who runs excavations in Egypt and who speaks for Egypt, who represents those in the press. And so the deal that, that Carter and Lord Carnarvon had made with the Times really sours that relationship Egyptian newspapers, for instance, are understandably furious that they're supposed to wait until the next day to get the press, that they have to get the story from a British newspaper when the story is happening in their own backyard. In the end, Howard Carter and the Egyptian government find a way to work together. They make peace, especially after a a friendlier, more pro-British government winds up in place. And it's only Howard Carter, really, who can continue the work that he started. So he keeps on excavating and recording the tomb right up into the 1930s, 1932, when, when finally everything is cleared and recorded. By that point, the world has moved on. It's got other worries. It's not so interested in Tutankhamun, and things go kind of quiet. The, the objects, including the famous mask, take up most of the, or half of the um, upper floor, the first floor of the Egyptian museum in Cairo. When the war breaks out, um, many of the objects are, are stored for safety in the basements of the museum. He's always a talking point. He's always known. It's this cultural memory because of those photographs, because of the news coverage, and, and because of these amazing objects. It's not that Tutankhamun disappears, but he, be, he comes back. He gets a rebirth in the 1950s and especially moving into the 1960s and 1970s. By that point, Egypt is fully independent. After the 1952 revolution, the 1956 Suez crisis, you've got Egypt completely independent um, and, and on its own two feet. And Tutankhamun becomes a cultural ambassador, having been for decades from the 1920s a symbol of 
the Egyptian nation, Egypt's new spirit, he then becomes a cultural ambassador in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, representing Egypt on its new, fully independent two feet in relation and on an equal stage with the rest of the world. It's really interesting you describe him as a cultural ambassador there, because one thing I picked up on in your book was, I mean, there's a number of tours of relics from Tutankhamun's tomb, and they have uh, a similarity in the name. They're all treasures. There's at least two treasures of Tutankhamun. There's the treasures of the tomb of Tutankhamun. There's the treasures of the golden pharaoh. Is there something to be said for that the use of that word treasures to define what we find given it the kind of commercial aspect at the beginning what are we saying about Tutankhamun? I think that's a really good question Kev a, a treasure is something so precious uh, unique of immeasurable value but antiquities always have a range of values including the financial value that gets put on them for insurance when they travel and a political and cultural value. It's interesting that a lot of the objects that get the main attention in the media in the 1920s and are featured in the photographs and in Howard Carter's presentation of the tomb, they're objects that are either made out of gold, like the mummy mask, or that are covered in gold. So gold takes on this kind of universal value. Who doesn't understand and the, the value of a metal that cannot tarnish? Other objects from the tomb are completely forgotten and not even really recorded very well or photographed by themselves and not always necessarily saved either. They disintegrate or they just weren't, it wasn't possible. So I'm thinking there, for instance, of the, the textiles that wrapped different statues in the tomb. The clothes, the um, a lot of, we basically have in the tomb boxes and boxes and boxes full of probably pretty much everything that Tutankhamun owned personally. His entire wardrobe, for instance, and some of his childhood items and potentially family heirlooms as well. And those in the, with the way that objects were kind of treated and thought about at the time, they're not as well preserved. They're not as, they don't photograph so well maybe. And so they, it's not until later decades that they kind of come back and, and are revisited, for instance, right now, the, the way that they're being worked on in Cairo for the new presentation in a new museum that's being built. So some objects seem more important than others or maybe speak to us more than others. The, the precious metals, the precious stones, objects of immense size, some of them, but also objects that are only a couple of inches high and made out of such exquisite craftsmanship they are treasures, and yet we maybe should reflect more on exactly what their importance is. Do you have um, an item or, or a set of items in your own head where the ones that aren't gold or covered in gold that you think this is such a key item that doesn't get talked about enough? Oh, gosh, there's so many of them. <laughs> I have trouble narrowing it down. Some, there's, there's many pieces of furniture there are wine vases. There are some things that if you just walked past them, maybe you wouldn't take a second look because they're a little bit more utilitarian. I'm always struck by the carved, and these are more famous, like the carved alabaster vases that held perfume. Those are really striking, but not just for the workmanship of the stone, but when you realize how they're inlaid with, um, with 
colorful mineral um, pigments and that where they represent animals because some of them show like lions and gazelles with their mouths open and you see this little pink tongue that comes out or the birds with a little pink tongue and that tongue is ivory that's dyed to make it pink it's just little details like that that grab me there were there were six chariots in the tomb six chariots in pieces so that was a massive reconstruction project so there's this mix of, you know, like the gilding and the inlays and the precious things, and then the small details that, that grab me. And the textiles really are amazing. I mean, he had a fine set of underwear. <laughs> That's incredible. I wonder if you could describe your own thoughts when you first saw those objects for the first time, because I, I imagine there's a difference between being very familiar with them in the photographs, but then actually seeing them in the flesh so to speak. I talk in the book about how, like many kids these days, I became interested in ancient Egypt because we'd studied it at school. In the 1970s in America, where I grew up, ancient Egypt was intentionally promoted on school curricula as a way to turn Americans around to thinking positively about Egypt. This was at a time when America was courting Egypt as an ally in the Middle East, especially in the wake of the 1973 to 74 oil crisis. I'd never seen an Egyptian work of art in person, but I got interested through photographs and through books and things like that. The first time I went to Egypt, I was, I guess, in my early 20s. And as I had, had been, had finished my master's degree and had won a scholarship that I could travel to Egypt. And I remember going to the Cairo Museum. And of course, you go to see the Tutankhamun objects. And it was crowded with tourists and it was hot. It was the summer. And walking by them, it was like seeing photographs that had come to life and seeing them in color, but also being confused because I realized that in all the years that I'd studied at that point, that I had been studying Egyptology, nobody had ever actually taught me about them. Nobody taught me what they meant as cultural objects. It was almost as if Egyptology was avoiding kind of looking seriously at a tomb, as if it was too popular or something like that. So it was a real privilege to be able to go back. Right before the pandemic, I went um, to Cairo at the end of December 2019 and was able to visit the conservation labs at a museum called the Grand Egyptian Museum, which is mind-bogglingly huge and expensive and is being built out near the pyramids at Giza. And I was I was really privileged to go into the storerooms and the conservation labs and to see them up, up front and to now have a much longer relationship with them and to be able to think about them, appreciate the mystery and the magnificence of them, but also appreciate how entangled they are with our own history in the world of these past hundred years. I find it hard now to kind of see them with innocent eyes. That's an interesting word there, innocent eyes. What do you mean by that? I think we're all implicated in a complex relationship because of the history of empire and colonialism. Egyptology remains, outside of Egypt, of course, remains a very white field. It's not a diverse field in its makeup or in its approach to its subject matter. And I appreciate the, I appreciate the desire that you know, wanting to understand more about the past and the ancient past. But I think it's just as important where we are right now, as a society, that we understand why we're interested in the ancient past and how we know about it, 
and also what we don't know about it. One thing that we haven't mentioned in all of our conversations about Tutankhamun is is Tutankhamun himself and his burial, his burial and that of possibly his two um, unborn, prematurely born, miscarried little girls. It seems like they might have been both girls. There's death and loss at the center of the tomb of Tutankhamun, but apart from a rather morbid interest in his embalmed body, he doesn't get a look in, or the element of of death and mourning doesn't get a look in somehow when we reflect on this. So treasures, you asked me earlier, what about this word treasures and how it keeps underscoring, you know, becomes almost trite in a way, as a way to talk about precious things. People are precious too. Very much so. And it is uh, interesting, as you say, that there's such a strong focus on the relics. I wonder in the 5,640 or so items, is Tutankhamun one of them? Gosh, that's a good question as well. Um, I'm trying, I'm thinking through, Howard Carter made a numbered list, read a catalogue as he went through. I mean, you'd hope he'd be number one. But... No, 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 because the body, that's an interesting point. People often think, you know, now we think Tutankhamun, we think the gold mask. The gold mask isn't revealed to the public until in, in by through photographs in fe- until february 1926 because the body is not opened unwrapped and effectively destroyed as i talk about in the book until november of 1925 to turn the gold mask into a treasure to turn it into what we see today Howard Carter and the anatomists, um, Egyptian and British anatomists who, who worked on the body, decapitated Tutankhamun. This is a tomb. It is the burial of the king. And Egyptian burials are about secrecy. Nobody's supposed to see anything about them. You're sealed away in multiple layers. And kind of the more layers, the better, right? So he's a king. He gets lots of layers. The big challenge that Howard Carter and um, his team of Egyptian archaeologists face in as they proceed into the tomb is how to dismantle the massive gilded wooden shrines that fill the entire burial chamber. Yeah, There's four shrines like a nest of Russian dolls, and they've been built inside the tomb chamber. It's a bit like a ship in the bottle. So that dismantling has to happen, super stressful. That's when Carter, you know, cracks and refuses to deal with the Egyptian government anymore and says, you know, enough, I'm out of here. It's only after tempers cool down, change of government in Egypt that's friendlier to, to the British government, that Howard Carter comes back and is ready, you know, little, a little less press coverage, everybody's a little more calm, let's just get on with it. And so they arrange then the opening of the coffin. So he's got through the four shrines now there's, then there's a stone sarcophagus, and then there's what turn out to be three coffins. Again, we're thinking of those Russian dolls that are nested together. Also, each one is wrapped in its own linen shrouds. November 1925 is the, the week that's finally fixed for two anatomists, um, to an Egyptian anatomist and a British anatomist to come and help Howard Carter what they think is going to be unwrap the body of Tutankhamun. In fact, they find out that it's totally stuck inside the body. Think of like bathtub-sized kind of coffin, right? The body is totally stuck, wrapped up in linen inside this coffin, soaked through with the kind of um, 
oily libations, right? With perfumed with tree resins, you know, lovely. It would have smelled lovely at the time, not in the 1920s. In antiquity, it would have smelled wonderful So when it's poured all over the body. But the whole thing is stuck fast. And the textiles are really um, in a poor condition. So rather than being able to get the body and all wrapped up body out and put it on an examining table, they kind of have to dig it out, the coffin. And they do that working from the chest down because the re- there's the gold mask. They can see bits of the gold mask, right? They can see that it's there, but and they, they clear the, the mask as much as they can. But then they realize it's totally stuck to the bottom of the coffin. So they work from the chest down. And then they, when they're down to the level of the basically the, the body itself, which is just skin and bones, they decapitate the body. They remove all the rest of it. And then they have to kind of prise out the mask with the head inside. And then Carter describes using heated knives to gradually liquefy or soften all of that resin and prise the wrapped up head out of the mask. So the object that we see today, the mask, and many of the objects from the tomb, many of those almost, you know, 5,000 odd objects, have undergone heavy restoration and repair in order to look like treasures. So again, maybe makes us think, well, what does something have to be to count as a treasure? That is fascinating. And poor, poor Tutankhamun. He's been through a lot. To draw us to a conclusion, we've talked about the kind of hundred years that have happened, very briefly, lots more in the book. But at the end, you write that it is worth asking what Tutankhamun can offer the future. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on what that might be. I tried to end the book on a positive note, which wasn't always easy to do after reflecting back on a hundred years of what Tutankhamun has been subjected to from his, his decapitation, his exploitation in the media, and then putting in a million miles, kind of raising money and, you know, risking often the, the security, um, not the security, but just subjecting fragile objects, let's say, to these world tours that he went on. What can we do today? Well, I hope that in 2022, as people start thinking about marking the 100-year anniversary of the discovery of his tomb, I hope it gives us an opportunity to reflect on the impact, the ongoing impact of the history of of empire, of colonialism, of shifts in the political landscape since the Cold War, since the break, since 9-11 situation in the Middle East today. I hope it gives us a chance, all of us, to reflect on that. I hope we can look towards a future that recognizes the contribution of Egyptians from all social levels in the country's ancient past and and the care for that past, what it means today. I hope that Egyptologists in the West, those who, who, who practice the study of ancient Egypt, will do more than pay lip service to that, and that we can see a greater diversity of voices, and that in understanding the politics of the past, we can look more carefully at the politics of the present that shape the way we think about the past ancient Egypt. That was Christina Riggs. Her book is Treasured, How Tutankhamun Shaped a Century, which is published by Atlantic. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.